So we were talking about kidney stones last lecture, and I mentioned that size really matters in whether a stone is going to pass spontaneously. Now, there's another factor that when you're talking about kidney stones, ureteral calculi, nephrolithiasis, whatever you want to call it, and that's where the stone is. So if it's in the proximal ureter, a proximal ureteral stone is actually less likely to pass spontaneously. Now that may make sense, one, because it's going to have a longer way to travel down the ureter. The other thing to keep in mind is that the ureter actually tapers, meaning it gets narrower as you go down the ureter. So if it's not passing from a high point, you know, proximal to the kidney, that's not a good sign. So again, you want to keep two major things in mind. What is the size of the stone? Where is it located? Because that's going to tell you in your head what are the real chances that this is going to pass. And that can be important for both hospitalists and primary care doctors, meaning if I see a small distal ureteral stone and I'm really mostly worried about admitting the patient for pain control because they're not septic and they're not getting hydronephrosis and I look at it and it's like, all right, this is pretty small, it's distal. I feel, okay, maybe I can just get this to pass and I don't really need a urologist to get involved, at least not immediately. I can put the patient in, do some hydration, analgesics, alpha blockers, all the things we're going to talk about. Maybe I'll talk about hydration right now because that always comes up with a little bit of controversy. So the controversy on that is, should you just do regular maintenance fluids or should you vigorously hydrate a patient when they have a kidney stone? Now, traditionally, I think most people have used pretty high rate IV fluids when you are dealing with a kidney stone and the thought process behind that seems reasonable. Meaning you're thinking that having more fluid flow through the kidney and the ureter is going to kind of push that stone, just expedite its passage more quickly, kind of like a faster river than a slower river, right? It just seems like a reasonable thought. The problem is that when it's been studied, and I should say these are small studies, it really has not shown to be of benefit, meaning that using maintenance IV fluids versus what we would call a forced hydration really so far has not proven to be a benefit either to the passage of the stone, the amount of pain medicines, or the patient's subjective feeling that things are getting better if you're using forced hydration versus maintenance therapy. The last time there was a Cochrane review on this, I believe was in February 2012, and basically what they said is they really could not make any firm conclusions about safety or effectiveness of increasing fluids. For that matter, in the same review they said using diuretics, they really don't have any evidence that that helps either. And to be very clear, what we're talking about is treatment IV fluids. What we're not talking about is increasing water or fluid intake to reduce the risk of recurrent kidney stones. I think that's a different topic. But as far as treatment with IV fluids or diuretics, I don't think anybody can tell you what the ideal rate is these days. All we can say is we don't really have much evidence that using very high rates is going to help all that much. Now, what I will say is a lot of these patients 
Some of them have been vomiting or have nausea or are going to be getting medications such as opioids, though I wouldn't use those first line, that will make them nauseous or not want to take in a lot of fluids. And we have to take that into account. So if you're volume depleted, I think you probably do need high rate IV fluids. Can't prove that. But needless to say, but maybe we're saying anyways, if you have a septic patient with a ureteral stone, then you have to follow the sepsis guidelines, which includes aggressive volume resuscitation, unless there's an obvious contraindication, you know, major pulmonary edema, that kind of thing. Okay, I realize I'm going a little out of order here, but let's step back from treatment for a second and get back a little bit more to diagnostics, which was mostly covered in the first lecture. But what I didn't mention was hematuria, so blood in the urine. Obviously, if you see gross hematuria, and I don't mean gross like disgusting, I mean visible to the naked eye, though I guess it could be disgusting, the majority of the time you see that, particularly in a symptomatic patient, you're always thinking about the urinary tract. So you're thinking, well, this could be a stone. It could be from the bladder or something else going on in the kidney. I mean, the majority of the time that I see gross hematuria in the hospital, and this is a subjective opinion, it's usually because a Foley catheter was placed and the patient often is on an anticoagulant or antiplatelets or both or had prostatic hypertrophy or it was a difficult passage and the urethra is damaged. My point in saying that is that I think the majority of gross hematuria I see is iatrogenically caused. But again, let's say someone comes in with hematuria and they say, I have blood in my urine. Well, then you're often straight away going again to stones as one of the things in the differential diagnosis. Obviously, bladder cancer and several other things are important to consider. But if they have typical symptoms like pain, particularly in the flank and abdomen, stones is high in our differential. You know, one thing I didn't mention in the first lecture is this word colic. So, Colic is a spasm in any hollow or tubular soft organ, and it's accompanied by pain. So the word renal colic is often used when talking about stones in the ureter or kidney, and the pain is coming and going. But I will say this, you definitely will see a lot of patients with spasms with ureteral stones and kidney stones, and then there are some patients where the pain is just constant. And differential diagnosis of pain in the abdomen is really challenging. I mean, nephrolithiasis, what else could it be? It's like, what else could it not be, right? It could be pyelonephritis, an ectopic pregnancy, a torsion of an ovarian cyst. You start thinking about things that can be going wrong in the intestine. So if it's on the left side, you're like, well, is it diverticulitis? If it's on the right side, is it appendicitis? Is there an obstruction? And therefore, we usually do want to get some type of confirmatory radiologic test to be sure what we are dealing with. Now, other times, there's a lot of other things that can point us in a different direction, meaning acute mesenteric ischemia. Well, that sometimes can be a similar pain to renal colic, but again, oftentimes there will be an acidosis or other laboratory physical findings and radiologic findings that help us rule that possibility out or at least make us think it's less likely. And again, one of the things that you're looking for is, is there hematuria? Now, gross hematuria, again, going to make you look for everything from renal cell carcinoma, 
down to the bladder or even the urethra. But what about microscopic hematuria? So when it comes to gross hematuria where you're seeing it or microscopic hematuria where you're picking it up on a urinalysis, yeah, the majority of patients with nephrolithiasis are going to have some type of hematuria, whether that's gross or microscopic, if it is symptomatic. But don't hang your hat on the absence of hematuria to rule out kidney stones or nephrolithiasis because like my kids have come to learn that if they don't see chocolate covered gummy bears, which is one of my favorite things, I know if you haven't tried them, they are really good, but they know if they don't see them, that doesn't mean they're not in the house, right? I think most people have hidden their favorite food from their family at least once. And in a similar manner, you are going to see symptomatic, definitely asymptomatic, but also symptomatic people with nephrolithiasis and ureteral calculi that do not even have microscopic hematuria. Now, sometimes the stone is obstructing, meaning no urine is getting through, so the blood is not going to end up in the urine, even on a UA. And there's other reasons why there may not be blood there. So the point is, is you don't want to hang your hat on it. I think you definitely want to consider whether there's microscopic hematuria. And obviously, if there's gross hematuria, go down that pathway. But don't get trapped in thinking there's no way this is nephrolithiasis if there's not any type of hematuria. That word trapped, it reminds me a couple days ago, one of my friends said to me, I was a male trapped in a woman's body, and then my mother gave birth. Oh, and that is probably why you don't want to talk politics and particularly social issues with myself or some of my friends. It's never going to end in a good place. But anyway, as far as ending in good places, maybe this is a good place to stop, and I will come back and we will discuss several more issues regarding nephrolithiasis in adults. You've been listening to Dr. Gil Perot. This is the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast.